This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, Sitius, Altius, Fortius, or for those not versed in Latin, faster, higher, stronger. The motto of the Olympics, which, after seven years of preparation, is underway as we speak in London. Mitt Romney's in London, too, beginning the ritual tradition for presidential challengers showing your chops overseas. We'll check in with our friend Ashley Parker of the New York Times, who's in London, following the governor and savoring the fish and chips. And on the sports theme, 2012, the year of the comeback? Angus King was the independent governor of Maine from 1994 to 2002. Now he's running for the U.S. Senate in a bold bid to shake up the upper body. We'll talk to the governor, fresh off a 600-mile road trip on the back of a Harley-Davidson from Fort Fairfield to Kittery. Then, against the backdrop of the Olympic pageant, it's Uniwatch. Paul Lucas, storyteller extraordinaire, minutiae fetishist, obsessive esoterist, UniWatch founder and role model for Polyoptics will join us to dissect the UniOlympics, as well as his other observations on the athletics aesthetics scene. But first, I am joined once again by my friend, guest co-host Kevin Sullivan of KS Communications, former communications director to George W. Bush. Kevin, welcome back to Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. Good to be back. This is a big week on the Polyoptics front. It is certainly a big week for NBC, isn't it? Your, your old stomping ground. Huge. Uh, it brings back a lot of memories. I'm pulling for all my former colleagues at NBC with the Olympics getting underway this week. Unprecedented coverage, uh, both online, really for the first time, full-on streaming. Uh, but I think viewers will find the same storytelling that NBC's known for in, in, in prime time. Interesting that this time, once again, we've got a political backdrop with Governor Romney uh, embarking upon his European trip uh, to London uh, Israel and Poland, but to coincide with the with the games to remind people of his connection to the successful Salt Lake Games. So four years ago, you are sitting in the White House as communications director to George W. Bush, uh, Senator Barack Obama, uh, really sort of initiating a tradition. I'm I'm sure that people will correct me and say candidates have gone over and done large uh, foreign swings during their their candidacies, uh, but Barack Obama goes to. Uh, at least Germany, Jordan, Israel, Iraq, Afghanistan. I'm not sure if London or Paris were in there on that trip, but uh, what were your thoughts uh, manning the Bush White House, supporting as necessary a uh, Democratic candidate going into foreign countries with, uh, with briefing and preparing him for what he needs to know, at least at minimum, and compare that to what you see ahead for this trip of Governor Romney that's going to stop in Poland and Israel before he comes home? I think I remember, obviously, there was the crowd of 200,000 people in Berlin, very enthusiastic about candidate Obama. And what what we took away at the White House is that he was, he was you know, fairly critical of the U.S. on foreign soil, which is really in the on the on the foreign stage in the in the diplomacy handbook. That's a that's a big no, no. And and uh, he apologized for the way that America had treated the world community. I think he used the word uh, derisive, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and so I remember that being the, the kind of the reaction at the White House was how unfortunate it was that he would go there and make negative comments about about the U.S. 
even in this in this this incredible setting that he, that uh, this reception he'd gotten in Berlin, that was unfortunate. And this was also a trip that the McCain campaign was able to make some hay on through paid advertising, right? That's right. They they jumped on that and, and, and tried to use it uh, to their advantage, again, to draw that distinction. McCain being a war hero, and here the president is on foreign soil saying negative things, you know, the way you could interpret it about the U.S. Uh, obviously, it didn't uh, move the needle a whole lot, and there was a lot of excitement around around the around the then-Senator Obama. And we'll see now how how uh, Governor Romney can do on his, his swing. Now, of course, he... He, he has known uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu for, for more than three decades. They were colleagues at Bain years and years and years ago. And, uh, and so he will get a warm reception there at a time when some people would say that President Obama is vulnerable on Israel, hasn't been there since that trip as a, as a candidate. Now, President Bush didn't go in his first term either. Uh, but I think given the issues, uh, that's an opening for, for Romney to, to score a few points uh, back potentially on the campaign uh, trail, even though... He's not going there to make that distinction and treat it real politically, but just to go on a, what he called a listening and learning tour. And I, and I know from our polyoptics viewpoint, Josh, to look at the role of the statesman and to show that he's got some uh, some some uh, foreign policy credentials. He is, in at least in his initial photo ops and the video that's come over from Europe, uh, b- bending over backward to say, and maybe bending over a little too far backward to say, I'm not here to criticize the president on foreign mm-hmm. soil, which is sort of a backhanded criticism that he, that he would do it anyway. Uh, but... Uh, we had in our last episode of Polyoptics, Matt Makoviak here, uh, who had previously written about the vice presidential pick. Now comes the Olympics. It has started this week. It's now ongoing for a fortnight more. Uh, when might be the right window for Governor Romney to come back to the U.S. and announce his pick? I think you'll see it fairly quickly after this trip. I, I think Even the, while the Olympics are going no, on? No, no. I think it'll be right after the Olympics. Uh, I don't think he'll do it. I wouldn't think he would do it while everyone's attention is still pretty much diverted. Depending on how, you know, swimming and gymnastics tells the tale. If the U.S. performs well in swimming and gymnastics in that first week, it is off to the races, and people will watch track and field. Uh, if, if, if we don't do as well, if there's some disappointments in the pool, you know, the, the, the U.S. men in gymnastics uh, potentially could win uh, the team uh, gold for the first time in many years. So uh, if there's a lot of excitement around the games, I don't think he'll do it till, till it's over. And even if, he, even if there is, uh, as long as the games are going on, there's no point in him trying to step on the attention that he has already said should go to the athletes. Well, as we have an opportunity now to check in with the Romney uh, entourage as, as it's beginning its swing through Europe, let's let's call over to London and bring in Ashley Parker from the New York Times. So we're joined, as we have been, on a couple previous episodes of Polyoptics by Ashley Parker, correspondent of the New York Times, my favorite and inveterate tweeter and Instagrammer and general reporter from the campaign trail, one of the great new voices of campaign 2012. Ashley, welcome back to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. You're not in your usual situ that I've talked to in the past, either the hustings of New Hampshire or the Midwest or headed out to North Dakota. You're in someplace vastly different. Where are you today? Uh, I am in London. I'm actually currently standing outside the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Hyde Park, uh, which is lovely, and where Governor Romney is finishing up a fundraiser. Now, you you came over a little earlier to sort of adapt yourself to the time zone and get yourself comfortable to be back (laughs) in Europe, this trip on to Poland and Israel. Tell us uh, how your trip has gone, the Ashley Parker trip has gone so far. Oh, the Ashley Parker trip, uh, which editors solely took place so I could be 
Riverside and bushy-tailed when Governor Romney arrived was fantastic. Uh, I headed over to Paris a couple days early. Um, and it was actually really, really nice because since Governor Romney arrived in London, we've been working full-time. And you will be, I assure you, as you move over to uh, the various stops in <laughs> Poland and, uh, and Israel. I want to begin, Ashley, if I could... Uh, Last week, there was a an interview that, that is sort of de rigueur for candidates and presidents as they head overseas. The intrepid news anchor follows along. And in this case, down in the city near the Tower of London, it was Brian Williams of NBC News. I want to play a little clip of the interview and, and get a sense from you about how it's playing in your eyes and ears and what the chatter is among the press corps. Here's a Republican official familiar with your campaign <laughs> selection process told the folks at Politico... You are looking for a, quote, incredibly boring white guy for your vice presidential nominee. Can you confirm or deny? You told me you were not available, but you're not. <laughs> Touche, Governor. Uh, I, I can't give you anything on that front whatsoever. Uh, no, no, nothing on that front whatsoever. So he's going to go to Europe and, and we will be preserved from having to see this pick until at least he comes back. What are people thinking about this Brian Williams interview? The and the notion of Governor Romney and the role he's playing as he heads overseas. So the big news that seemed to, at least to the British press, that seemed to come out of the Brian Williams interview was that Governor Romney said that, you know, he he felt some of the things he'd seen about the preparations here for the games were a bit disconcerting. Uh, and he, you know, he mentioned some things that didn't seem super well organized. And so that the British press absolutely seized on. It was the headline that was splashed all over their, their websites. Um, Thursday today after the interview and you know it's something that, that Governor Romney he, it was funny because he had come over here obviously he wanted to make a big point about the Olympics um, but this was not quite the point he wanted to make and so uh, David Cameron came out and kind of issued a pretty tart retort to him saying you know well it's one thing when you organize the Olympics in the middle of nowhere and apparently sort of knock on Salt Lake City, where Governor Romney, you know, oversaw the Olympics in 2002, but it's much more difficult in a bustling metropolis. So today, when Governor Romney had sort of wanted to look presidential, he spent all day kind of backpedaling uh, to get out of that mess. Let's hear a little bit from that part of the interview. And I, and as a person who goes to London frequently, I know that the the tabloid environment is much greater than it is in Manchester or Des Moines. So it's probably something that. Uh, the campaign apparatus of the Romney effort is is a little bit maybe on their their heels about. Let's hear it. You know, it's hard to know just how well it will turn out. Will turn out. There are a few things that were disconcerting. The stories about the uh, private security firm not having enough people, uh, the su- supposed strike of the immigration and customs officials. That obviously is not something which is encouraging, because in the games, there there are three parts that make games successful. Number one, of course, are the athletes. That's what overwhelmingly the games are about. Number two are the volunteers, and they'll have great volunteers here. But number three are the people of the, of the country. Do they come together and celebrate the Olympic moment? And that's something which we only find out once the games actually begin. And, and an Olympics effort over its 17 nights generally does iron those things out. But this British press corps, Ashley, that you're running into uh, are, is looking for any story before the opening ceremonies, aren't they? Yeah, well, you know, I think the truth is, I think it's the combo of, yeah, I mean, it's the British press corps. They're sort of salacious and fun, and, you know, they want stories. But also, Governor Romney, um, you know, he had a jam-packed schedule today, but a lot of it was private meetings. So he would make brief remarks at the top about, you know, it was often about the games or about the weather. Um, and then he would go into these private meetings, and, you know, a campaign aide would say, well, they discussed Syria or they discussed the economy, but 
no one would get any real details. So sort of in the absence of real news and in, in the face of photo opportunities, you know, the British press could sort of be forgiven for thinking that this was the most interesting thing that had happened since Governor Romney landed over here. To that Brian Williams interview, I watched it fairly closely. And as a person who watched Governor Romney's campaign in 2008, living in Massachusetts or, or Massachusetts native while he was governor there, and certainly thinking back to his time organizing the games, it was hard for me not to see, Ashley, a, a, a sort of weathered and and, and tired look on his visage. And, and this is a person who over the last few weeks has, as Brian has pushed him, uh, defended questions about his vice presidential pick, releasing his tax returns, his experience at Bain Capital, when exactly that ended. Do you feel that wearing on him and the campaign as they head off to Europe? Yeah, you know, it's, it's tough to tell. I mean, Governor Romney, he actually sort of has been taking a lot, in the lead up to this trip, he had been taking a lot more vacation, spending a lot more time at Wolfboro. It seemed like to try to sort of rejuvenate himself. But but you're right. I mean, one of the ironies that came out of that interview with Brian Williams was that the big news was this, as the British press put it, Olympic-sized gaffe. And Mitt Romney, of all people, loves the Olympics. He and his wife, you know, it's their passion. They've been to every game since 2000, actually. They never miss it, even when Anne was sort of in the throes of, of the worst of her illness. She always made a point of coming to the game. So I'm sure it's particularly painful for him sort of to have his gasp be on, on this topic of all topics. So I've seen uh, Charlie Darapak's feed of AP photos coming out of this first day of his European swing, bilats with uh, Prime Minister Cameron, uh, uh, touring an exhibit with Foreign Secretary Haig, uh, the British opposition leader Ed Miliband, uh, former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Uh, putting aside the stuff about the Olympics itself, how does he seem to comport himself as a leader on the world stage? So again, I should start by saying that we are really not seeing a ton of this because a lot of this is happening behind closed doors. Um, but you know, the readout, his, one of his senior policy advisors just gave us a sort of on background briefing. And, you know, it seems like uh, one topic that came up a lot was both, you know, the, the Eurozone crisis um, and the leaders were very curious to hear what Governor Romney felt, you know, was going to happen with the fiscal cliff uh, back in the United States. So that's a topic on which he's very comfortable and presumably comported himself very well. Um, And they also sort of discussed, you know, Syria and the Arab Spring and Egypt. And again, we don't know specifically what was discussed, uh, but his aide did say that it, it was less about Governor Romney offering his opinion or specific policy prescriptions and more about, you know, the various leaders coming together to express that this was a worrying part of the world that they were all kind of jointly concerned about and exchanging ideas. Now, as Ashley Parker reported, uh, Governor Romney had spent a considerable amount of time on Lake Winnipesaukee in Wolfboro. You yourself seemed to get very comfortable with the ice cream stands and the the other uh, goodies (laughs) available in in central New Hampshire. And over the last year, I think you've probably seen a Romney machine and campaign apparatus that has increasingly been well-oiled and mechanistic as it's moved across the United States. How does it feel now it's it's gone on to literally foreign territories? Are you being, is the campaign working as well as it has been back in the states you know yes and no it's only the first day so i think we'll see i think israel and probably poland will be a bit more challenging um you know but in terms of the actual logistics uh the romney campaign has always been great at logistics and the logistics here again were were pretty seamless the pool was you know let in and everyone was where they needed to be um i think the romney campaign may have underestimated sort of the british press and in their need to make news, they're sort of underestimated the fact that if the Romney campaign didn't actively make news, 
news would be made for them. So I think what we're seeing now is they're struggling a little bit to gain control of that narrative. But again, it's the only first day. Tomorrow he's going to attend uh, the opening ceremonies, which will be a nice reminder of what he did with the Olympics in Salt Lake City and how he turned them around. And I think they're hoping he'll you know, get a list and some goodwill from that. When we traveled along with President Clinton and, and orchestrated these foreign trips to all over the world, uh, obviously you bring Air Force One, a huge apparatus of aides, uh, a bit able to brief on background, a lot of written material to provide context, the issues in Poland, the issues in, in Israel. Are you being, how are you being briefed about what is to come down the road in Poland and Israel? So the Romney campaign, uh, both the Obama campaign and the Romney campaign before Governor Romney left gave us uh, briefings on what to expect from the trip. As you can imagine, they were slightly different. And then the Romney campaign also had a conference call to preview the speech he gave in Reno, Nevada, that previewed what was going to happen on the trip. So we've, we've had a lot of briefings on what to expect. <laughs> Looking, looking down at the rest of the trip and then on, at your return uh, to the United States, Ashley, uh, is this for you, a reporter for the New York Times, a, a fun assignment? And are you looking forward to getting back to following this campaign through the vice presidential pick through into the conventions in the fall final, final stretch? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm excited about all of it. I'm excited. I was excited to be in Paris. I'm excited to be in London. I've never been to Israel or Poland, so I'm excited to go to both of those places. And I'm excited to see what happens with the VP and what happens with the election. So... Yeah, general excitement on my end. <laughs> Ashley Parker, I hope uh, I hope the time zone works well for you and your files. I don't think it will, though. I think it's a it's an impediment uh, to to your good sleeping and good eating. But uh, enjoy the rest of the trip. Uh, we'd love to hear what you're seeing, both uh, through your words and through your Instagram. So please keep it up. Yeah, thank you. So I am thrilled to welcome to Polyoptics a guy who I have known from afar for 20 years since uh, his uh, two sons, Angus III and Duncan, were friends of mine in Washington, and I greatly admired his two terms as Maine governor from 1994 to 2002 while I was working at the White House. And I thought that when he left Blaine House and and got with his wife Mary and did 15,000 miles around the U.S. in his RV, that that might be the last we'd see of Governor Angus King on the on the public stage. But sure enough, when Senator Olympia Snow announced that she would not be running for re-election, here comes Governor King back to run for a historic independent run for the United States Senate. I can't overstate the importance of what it might mean for a person to go down to Washington without allegiance either to Mitch McConnell or or, or Harry Reid. And, and Governor, thank you so much for calling us right after you disembarked your Harley-Davidson and your 600-mile run from Fort Fairfield down to Kittery. How was the trip? Uh, it was fantastic. We went from the very top of Maine on the Canadian border to the very bottom on the New Hampshire border. Four days, uh, 620 miles, uh, about a half day of rain, which is no fun on a motorcycle, but boy, did we see some beautiful country, met lots of people, uh, had some fun. We had uh, 15, I think we had about 15 guys uh, and, and women with us uh, at one time or another. People sort of joined. This morning, it was really cool. We were we were on our way south and uh, uh, going along Route 26 in Maine, and there was a guy sitting on the side of the road in a big orange Davidson waved us down, said, I want to join the ride. He'd seen it on, in, uh, on the news and uh, jumped in with us. So we had a great trip, Josh. Great trip. Governor, uh, a couple of years ago when Scott Brown won his Senate, Senate race in Massachusetts, uh, one of the one of the sort of 
pictorial or polyoptic images that was so captivating was the idea of him in his front seat of his pickup truck. And and Senator Brown has sort of parlayed that image to a a level of a a sort of somewhat independent streak in Massachusetts. How much thinking went into the idea that I'm Angus King, I am an inveterate RVer, I'm also a Harley rider, let's let's get on back of the bike and see the whole state as best we can. Well, this is something that I've done seven or eight times. I did it when I was governor, and I used to say that I, it was a road inspection tour. Uh, uh, nobody really bought that. Uh, but uh, I, I've done this a bunch of times all over Maine, and in fact, we've gone over into New Brunswick and New Hampshire and as far as Nova Scotia. So uh, I just uh, I, I like uh, riding and and I like being out and it's a great way to see the country. You're 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 intimately connected to the road when you're when you're on the seat of a motorcycle for three or four days. But uh, yeah, it's uh it, it it's it's fun and and uh, I just uh, you know it's I've been riding bikes. I I did a, a calculation. I probably shouldn't say this, but I, this is I think my 48th year uh, with a motorcycle off and on. So. Uh, uh, but it, we, we just had a great trip this this week. It was beautiful. Governor, as, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Aroostook County. You began your trip at the at the Potato Blossom Festival up in Fort Fairfield. Uh, can you share with our listeners the difference, the the um, sort of the geographic and demographic difference between the very topmost part of the state, the Canadian border, and the the far more populated part of Southern Maine? Well, the first thing to know is that the, 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 as the crow flies from top to bottom, it's about 450 miles. So it's a, it's a big state. And, uh, in fact, the second congressional district of Maine is the largest congressional district east of the Mississippi. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of territory up there. And up north, it's farming country. Uh, where we started, I started, we actually started in a town called Fort Kent. And, uh, we started at mile zero of U.S. Route 1. Uh, there's a big sign, mile zero of U.S. Route 1. And, of course, U.S. Route 1 goes all the way down the east coast to Key West. And uh, that's where we thought it would be symbolic to start start there and, and uh, work our way south. But uh, it's farming country, potatoes. Interestingly, in recent years, they started growing broccoli. They make French fries up there. Uh, really great people. Uh, it's been agricultural for 100-plus years. Uh, and and it's a, a wonderful family. Uh, you, you almost want to say, uh, you know, it's 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 the old days. It's family values, small towns, people looking after one another, and, and that uh, that's a wonderful place. And then uh, we went down what they call down east, which is a place called Washington County, which juts way out into the Atlantic. It's the easternmost part of Maine. And, you know, it was it was unbelievably cool because it just so happened the schedule worked. We went to the dedication of the first uh, grid-connected tidal power project in the United States uh, in a town called, in a city called Eastport, which is uh, the easternmost city of the United States. It has huge tides, 20-foot tides that are, you know, running uh, back and forth all the time. And uh, we're going to capture some of that power and uh, put it into the grid. So... Um, uh, that that was a that was a sort of nice bonus uh, on the trip, and then we went from there through uh, Central Maine, more agriculture, the city of Bangor, which is one of our major cities, and then across into the mountains uh, over near the New Hampshire border, and then down to Southern Maine, which is pretty close to Boston and very much urban. I, you know, I went 24 hours without seeing a stop sign, and then today we had red lights and stop signs and traffic circles and all that kind of stuff. So. 
Uh, great variety on the trip, uh, but uh, as I say, just uh, wonderful. And, and Josh, I'll tell you a secret. Uh, you can't answer a cellular phone when you're on a motorcycle, uh, and that makes it fun, too. That is beautiful. But, you know, Governor, it raises an issue that you talked about uh, when I saw you in New York last week, which is uh, from Fort Kent uh down through so many of the parts of Maine that you went, there is not great cellular coverage. There is not great high-speed internet coverage. And what does that mean for a state trying to rebuild its economy, given the the legacy that you brought to it during your two terms of governor, the one laptop per child and things like that? Well, I I think uh, infrastructure is one of the fundamental functions of government. And I actually, uh, I, I did a little essay on this a while ago. It ran across a great quote from Abraham Lincoln when he was 23 years old running for the Illinois legislature. And he talked about the importance of roads and navigable streams for connecting our communities and bringing prosperity to our country. I mean, it was, it could have been written yesterday. Only today, of course, we have to maintain our roads and bridges and airports and rail. But uh, I believe broadband is the highway, is the is the uh, essential piece of infrastructure. And uh, there are a lot of parts of rural Maine and rural America where you can't get uh, decent uh, inter- internet connection speed, and that's a that's a problem on two fronts. One, it's a real serious economic problem. I mean, you. A, a business can't move someplace without internet service. I mean, it's as simple as that. And and it's so it's an economic death sentence if we can't get these places connected. And then secondly, even individuals are pretty reluctant. Young people aren't going to buy a house. Imagine yourself going to buy a house, and the realtor says, "Oh, by the way, you can never have high-speed internet here." You'd say, "Well, I'm sorry, I'm going I'm to move somewhere else." So it's a it's a major thing that I want to work on if I'm fortunate enough to be sent to Washington because I think it's a it's it's analogous to uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's rural electrification back in the 30s, which, you know, everybody said he was crazy and we couldn't do it. And the houses were too far apart, but it it really revitalized rural America. And I think uh, broadband is is in that category. Governor, as you know, thinking about your the potential of you move, uh, moving down to Washington. Uh, you know my my history with the Clinton administration. As our guest co-host today, my friend Kevin Sullivan, he was. Uh, Director of Communications for President George W. Bush. He's joining and, and would love to ask you a question as well. Sure, hey, Go- Kevin. How are you? I'm fine, Governor. Good to talk to you. Well, yes, you're, 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 uh, your bike trip, obviously a great way to drive the kind of images we talk about on this show a lot, those Main Street images connecting you to the regular people in, in Maine. But also sometimes it's you can use words to paint a picture that connects you with the audience you want to be connected with and to redefine yourself a little bit. And when you announced your candidacy, I loved your quote, I don't drink wine. I don't know what Brie is. I bowl every Thursday night, and my idea of fun is to go RVing. And I wondered, how did that work for you? How did you, uh, how did you put that together? And is there a guy running for president for the Republican Party who maybe could take a page from that playbook in terms of his uh, ability to connect and and and, and uh, define himself, in my view, a little more accurately as a good guy and a regular guy who who can relate to the average person. Well, the the uh, they were you know I I was fortunate enough uh, when I was in my late forties to build a very successful business and make a fair amount of money and then people automatically assume if you make some money then you're an elitist and you you know you don't you don't know how to relate to people. Um, in my case, I had fifty years of <laughs> of uh, you know nothing special and uh, suddenly found myself with some wealth, but. 
you know, the first thing I did, uh, and this is absolutely true, the first thing we did when we, uh, when I sold my business and had a, had a chunk of dough was put vinyl siding on the house. Uh, that was, that was Mary and I's big investment, uh, the first thing within, uh, a few months, uh, so I didn't have to paint the damn thing every, every <laughs> two years. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know, I mean, People make assumptions about you, you know, and and I every now and then they say, oh yeah, he's brie and tassel loafers and all that stuff, and you know I'm a public school guy and uh, uh, and that's just you know who I am. And I, frankly, I, I enjoy sort of confusing people too. I mean, they try to categorize me and they say, oh yeah, well here, here's the box we'll put this guy in, and then suddenly they see me on my Harley and they say, oh well wait a minute, that that doesn't fit. I think the best strategy is just to be yourself. Governor, uh, talking about being yourself, for our nationwide audience who probably doesn't know a lot about Angus King, uh, it started for you in uh, in Virginia, but your parents uh, uh, really came to Maine as a result of Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, and that's where it began for you. Can you, can you share a little bit of parents, background? It was, wasn't my parents, it was me. Uh, I came to Maine uh, in 1969 after getting out of law school with the War on Poverty. I was I was in the National Legal Services Program and was assigned to a small town in, in central Maine called Skowhegan, which, by the way, was Margaret Chase Smith's hometown, kind of interestingly. And I used to ride circuit and uh, go up to even smaller towns. Uh, I had a territory that was about the size of the state of Rhode Island, I think. And uh, one of the things I realized, and I remember having this insight at the time, I was dealing with low-income people. And, you know, dealing with their legal problems, whether it was some, you know, something with their housing or or a debt problem or whatever it was. And I came to realize that their legal problems represented uh, only a piece of, of the difficulty that they were having. And that, you know, I, I might be able to fix it. It would be like a doctor fixing a broken arm, but when somebody has, a you know, a broken foot and, and, and something else. And, and that I realized that, you know, I, I wanted to try to, make a larger impact uh, and deal with, you know, the whole person instead of just this legal problem. And ultimately, uh, after a lot of time in alternative energy and business and law and things, I ended up at the ripe old age of 50 running for governor as an independent. So, Governor, when I uh, when I was with Angus and, and uh, your son Angus and Duncan a few weeks ago and looking at the polls and, and some of the national stories that had come out of the campaign, uh, things looked very good for you. But the warning from your from your boys and also subsequently from you was that, you know, August is one thing and July is one thing. But I'm I'm really concerned that there could be outside money coming in to try and make an influence in this race. Just this week, I think we've seen uh, that the Chamber of Commerce is beginning to go up with an unprecedented ad buy against you. Or do you feel well equipped to combat against this? Yeah, I think I, I think we're ready to to respond. Uh, it's uh, it's disappointing, actually. It's 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 hilarious that it's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce because I spent 24 hours a day for eight years working on business and with business and per, you know supporting business and. And, uh, you know, clearing away regulations, lowering taxes on business. I mean, uh, the business community in Maine is kind of scratching their head. You know, what, what is it with these guys in Washington? Because they certainly don't know my record up here. And, and yeah, but they're coming after me. They're spending a lot of money. They're doing negative ads. And, and like I say, we're going to be ready to respond. But I think uh, maybe I'm being naive or, or too optimistic, but I think Maine people can see through this stuff. I mean, I, and the thing that the, the worst part about these ads is we don't know who paid for them. 
and and uh, you know the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is is a kind of identity laundering operation where you know they put up the ads the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, but the money's coming from from somebody else and uh, you know some interests and we don't know who it is and you know you're not allowed to go to a main uh, a main town meeting with a bag over your head you know if you're gonna if you're gonna make comments stand up and tell tell people who you are and so here we've got these these folks from who knows where. Uh, trying to tell Maine people how to vote. I don't think it's going to work, um, but uh, you know that's part of uh, that's part of the, the national politics today. I think it's an unfortunate part, frankly. You know, Governor, outside of Maine, we don't see a lot of independents uh, mounting the kind of kind of campaign that you're mounting. There's a lot of attention about who will you caucus with. Clearly, the GOP thinks you'll caucus with the with the Democrats. Talk a little bit about what kind of senator uh, you'll be, especially with all the attention on. Uh, you know, divisiveness well, in, in D.C. You know, I, I, I'm an independent. I was an independent governor. Sometimes I sided with the Republicans, sometimes with the Democrats. I vetoed, you know, 50 or 60 bills and over my eight years, and almost all of them were Democratic bills. Almost all of them were sustained by Republican majorities in the legislature. So, you know, I, I call them as I see them, and, and uh, I'm finding that this is profoundly unsettling to people in Washington. If you're an enemy, they can cope with that. And if you're a friend, they can cope with it. But somebody who's unencumbered and just wants to, you know, do the, do what's right for the state and for the country uh, is, uh, it seems to be a threat. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're all, they got their knickers all twisted up down there. But uh, as far as caucusing, I would like to remain independent as long as possible. I, I, I want to be independent as long as I can. But not be ineffective. I, I, I that you know, this isn't a stunt. I, I have to represent Maine, and I want to represent Maine adequately and be effective on behalf of Maine. And for example, you know, the question will will arise: What do you have to do to be on a committee? Uh, and uh, maybe do you have to join a caucus? And I'm not so sure of that now. But if it turns out that that's the case, then the question is: What does caucusing mean? And Part of my decision at the time will be what do the parties propose uh, in terms of allowing me to be as independent as possible. If they say, okay, you've got to vote with us once to organize the Senate, and then you're on your own, we'll put you on a committee, uh, you know, that's, that, that's okay. That's one thing. But if they say, well, you've got to vote with us 85% of the time or whatever it is, and we'll, or we'll boot you out of your committee seat, then, you know, that's the kind of discussion that uh, uh, I'm sure we will have. And the tenor of that discussion, as you fellows will certainly understand, is will be determined largely by what the numbers are when and if I'm fortunate enough to be sent down there. If it's if it's uh, you know 55-45, then uh, it'll be a different kind of discussion than if it's 50-49-1, to 49 to 1, uh, in which case uh, I think I'll be in a pretty good position. There is no more fascinating race uh, in this for the U.S. Senate uh, in 2012. Angus King, uh, who has now finished a 600-mile trip from Fort Kent down to Kittery, uh, best of luck for the rest of the trip. This is a man who, in his office, has two photos, one of Ronald Reagan and one of Bobby Kennedy. If you want to talk about an independent candidate, that's a pretty good description of two people who polyoptically from Kevin and my standpoint, uh, cuts it right down the middle. Thanks so much for joining us, Governor. Hey, Kevin and Josh, great to chat with you guys, and uh, let's keep in touch as this thing unfolds. Thank you very much. Good luck, sir. Yes, sir. Bye-bye.
So, Kevin, Paul Lucas joins us now from his, uh, from his readout in Brooklyn, from which emanates UniWatch, uh, his ESPN column, uh, his other projects. He's a guy who I've followed for many years since I first read a piece by him in the New York Times dissecting the beefsteak, which are these fundraising events where people gather around huge tables and huge piles of filet mignon and, and bread and beer. And ever since Paul described that in such gorgeous and uh, sumptuous detail, I've said, "How? what other things does this guy write? And it turns out that he writes sort of exactly in sports what I've been obsessed about politics. You know, the presidential seal is like the uniform of the president, and it never deviates like the New York Yankees from decade to decade. But podiums are very different. Lighting is very different. Backdrops are very different. So as I read the things that Paul writes every day, and I can't imagine how he gets the time to turn out as much content as he does, I'm thinking, how can I create something similar to UniWatch? And that was polyoptics. But it's almost hero worship to welcome Paul Lucas to our show today. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Boy, that's a tough introduction to follow, but uh, thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Paul, a couple weeks ago, uh, you did what I think a lot of readers are often after you to do, which is to take their questions, sort of like Prime Minister question time. And since we talked about Mitt Romney's visit to London a little earlier, you went through a litany of questions that I will post a link to at the polyoptics.com site. But beginning for our listeners who are more focused on the political angle than the sports angle, how did UniWatch begin for Paul Lucas? Uh, well, UniWatch was a project um, that I came up with in the late 90s. I had spent much of the 90s writing about the details of brand design, package design, uh, industrial design, uh, mostly for business magazines, uh, and a very detail-oriented kind of way of, of looking at the consumer landscape. But I was also a big sports fan, and I was interested in aspects of sports design. Uh, and I had a girlfriend who got kind of tired of me pointing at the TV every time we watched a ball game and saying, like, look at his sleeve, how it's a little longer than that other guy's sleeve, or look at his socks, or whatever. And my girlfriend would sort of roll her eyes, and she eventually said, you know, Paul, maybe you need an outlet for this. And, and that's how UniWatch was born. It occurred to me that I could take the same detail-oriented prism through which I was looking at the consumer landscape uh, and apply it to sports. And I thought initially, well, I could do a couple of articles, maybe I could do a column, and uh, that was 13 years ago, and UniWatch is a daily blog now and a weekly column on ESPN.com, and it's frankly proven to be much more durable than I ever would have guessed, and that's mainly because of UniWatch's incredible readers um, who provide me with so much material. They're my eyes and ears out there. Like, while I'm sitting here talking to, to you, I've got emails coming in from readers who've noticed something while watching a game, or they found an old photograph of some, you know, that shows something um, you know, detail-related in terms of a uniform or some visual aspect of sports. Um, it's a very, very deep rabbit hole. Uh, this, talking about this rabbit hole, I see hundreds of comments to every post that you put up. What are the metrics that you are able to share that describe the, the UniWatch community? Um, in terms of its size, uh, the, the daily UniWatch blog um, gets about uh, somewhere between ten and 15,000 visitors a day most days, uh, a little less on the weekends. Uh, my columns for ESPN do a little bit better, as you would expect, because ESPN has uh, a higher readership. Um, the readership is, uh, I would say, overwhelmingly male <laughs> and uh, leans toward a certain geeky sensibility. Never underestimate the power of sports geekitude. That's, that's definitely one of the, the lessons of UniWatch. Well, I, uh, Kevin and I are both sports geeks. Uh, having c grown up in Boston, 
you know, I grew up with with four very classic uniforms, uh, the New England Patriots, the old red uniform, the Boston Bruins, Boston Celtics, of course, a classic, and the Red Sox. And during the 70s and into the early 80s, no one wore his uniform better, I think, than Dwight Evans. And one thing that he did so well was how he wore his stirrup socks. Because stirrup socks are sort of the defining controversy of UniWatch. Can you share with our readers what your particular fascination with them is? Sure. Uh, when I was growing up uh, in the 70s, which gives you an idea of how old I am, so I'm, I'm older than a lot of my readers, uh, but, uh, you know, I was in Little League, and uh, as most people, uh, most many sports fans were anyway, I don't know about most, but certainly many, uh, and, and I loved putting on my stirrups with my Little League uniform, because to me, it was the one thing that set off a baseball uniform from all the other uniforms. You know, every uniform has a jersey. Every uniform has pants or shorts. But only baseball had these this unusual hosiery, you know, <laughs> these, these stirrups, um, which you put on over a white tube sock, uh, and you wanted to get it just so. And when I was growing up, there were players who wore their stirrups a certain way and other players who wore it a different way. And, uh, and I always noticed that kind of thing. And that was sort of UniWatch um, in its embryonic stage without my even realizing it, that I was notice- noticing those things back then. Uh, and so uh, it was just something I, I was very aware of with baseball players. Uh, and, of course, that started changing in the late 80s and into the 90s when players started wearing their pants lower and lower. Um, they had also been stretching their stirrups higher and higher, and, and the stripe of the stirrup was getting thinner and thinner to the point where it sort of became inconsequential. Uh, and when, so- when something is inconsequential, it, it basically goes away. And that's what happened to stirrups. And now no- basically nobody wears them. A handful of players still wear them. Juan Pierre, um, a couple of other players. Uh, and um, most players now, of course, don't even bother to hike their pants up high. They just wear their pants down at their shoe tops, which we call the pajama style. Uh, and to me, that goes against the whole point of, of baseball, baseball's hosiery heritage, as I like to call it. There's, there's a reason we have teams called the Red Sox and the White Sox. Uh, even the Cincinnati Reds were once called the Red Legs. And, you know, the, the sock, or you know, whether it's a sock or a stirrup or whatever you have under there, it's part of the uniform. And it was not meant to be covered up by the pants. And I think it's a real shame what's happened uh, with so many ballplayers now putting their, their pants down to their shoe tops. And it's sort of amazing that there is no regulatory framework for that. You know, Major League Baseball polices a lot of aspects of the game and a lot of aspects of the uniform. But there's nothing that says a player has to wear his pants at a certain height or a certain level or cuff it at a certain level. Uh, and so you have this complete mishmash of styles out there, and, and the uniform is not very uniform. And you and Bud Selig have never had this conversation? Uh, you know, somehow when we get together, he, he always buys me a few drinks really fast and gets me kind of, you know, schnockered <laughs> and, and before, I, before I can really get to, get to talking about the stirrups. I know. In my Mavericks days, the NBA rulebook had a uniformity of uniforms clause that every guy on the floor had to be dressed exactly the same way. Obviously, that's not the case in baseball. I bet you that, that Tampa Bay Rays manager Joe Madden is a UniWatch fan. He, he is a riot. I mean, Joe Madden is my favorite baseball manager. It's funny you bring him up. You know, when the when the Rays wore, they recently wore a uniform that was a, a supposed throwback to the 1970s, and of course the Rays didn't exist in the 1970s, so it was sort of a what if uniform. You mentioned that it might be a Diet Pepsi knockoff or Pepsi Light. It looks Pepsi like or Light. Crystal uh, Pepsi Light. I think it was was the brand they had in the in the 70s. It was. Uh, it was a diet uh, Pepsi with uh, with lemon, with artificial lemon flavoring, and yeah, that's exactly what this Rays throwback looks like. It had all the the same color scheme and the same sort of yellow trim as Pepsi Light, and for whatever reason, they chose Joe Madden 
to model the uniform uh, when they announced it. And any other team would have trotted out its big stars. And, of course, the Rays have stars. They have great pitchers. Uh, they've got Evan Longoria. They've got, you know, they've got players they could bring out for a photo op. But only the Rays, I think, would have brought their manager out for this photo op. And that's what they did. Because Joe Madden, there's something, there's sort of, something sort of playful about him. And uh, he totally gets it when it comes to this stuff. Well, and you know, he does themed road trips, bed, sports coat trip, and right, various right. They, things. They, they wore those, they, they call them the brazers instead of blazers. They were these tacky, uh, tacky uh, sports coats in uh, Tampa Bay Rays colors, and it, that became a thing for a while. He, he definitely knows how to keep a team loose. Well, and you know, last I believe it was last season, he required the guys to show their their uh, stirrups on a road trip. Uh, maybe it wasn't the whole road trip; it was a weekend or one game. But he had he had a day when he made all the players dress like uh, they like they should. Yeah, so, and, those, and those stirrups are beautiful because they're striped. They've got the horizontal stripes going across them, and some players still wear them. You see a few of the the Rays players still wearing them. And what's yeah. ironic, of course, is that um, the Rays' first base coach is George Hendrick, who really started the pajama pants revolution. He was the first player back in the eighties to wear his pants down to his ankles at that point, not, not quite to his shoe tops, but down to his ankles. And, of course, when all the Rays did do uh, that, that one road trip uh, where they all went high-cuffed, George Hendrick refused. He would not play along because that's just not his thing. With the with Olympic competition now getting underway, what, what are your thoughts on this year's Team USA uniforms? Not the Made in China controversy as much as the aesthetic and what uh, Team USA will look like on the fields of play. Uh, you know, the Olympics are tricky because any other uniform for, for a normal team, it has time. It has a whole season. It, it has years. It can have decades if they don't change it for you to get used to it and for it to sort of make an imprint on your mind. But the Olympics are only around for two weeks. And in some cases, you know, depending on the event, the event may only, you know, uh, take place over the course of a few days. So a lot of times they, they try to be extra flashy or they try to make a a very immediate impact with the design, and that's a tricky thing to do. Uh, as far as the opening ceremony uniforms, uh, the, you know, the ones that were made in China, uh, they're very skippy and muffy. I don't know what they were thinking with those berets. I think a lot has already been written about that. I'm more interested in um, the uniforms we're probably going to be seeing the most of, which is the American basketball team's uniforms, which were made by Nike. And if you look at them from the front, it looks like a fairly conventional basketball uniform. And then if you look at it from the back, suddenly it's this two-tone kind of bizarro eccentric design because the shorts are one color in the front and another color in the back, and the color in the back doesn't match the color of the jersey. So it's sort of like, um, like a mullet. It's, uh, it's business in front and a party in the back. It's, it's the mullet <laughs> uniform. Paul, sticking on the controversy of manufacturing, because you are close to the manufacturers of all the major sports, baseball, uh, football, basketball, hockey, uh, Ralph Lauren is a company that probably is uh, doesn't spend a lot of its time doing sports uniforms except when it comes to polo. Uh, does it seem like a, a, an opportunity that, that could have been a great opportunity for them to find a good milling operation in the United States and saying, you know, for what it's worth, these uniforms are made in America. Do you think they got that message? And, and how, do, how is this issue, how is this issue playing out, even though it has been widely written about? I'm absolutely curious about what UniWatch thinks about this. Uh, well, they, they did say uh, for the, the Winter Olympics uh, in 2014, uh, which I guess they also have the contract for, uh, that those uh, uniforms will be made in America. But yeah, it does seem like a big missed opportunity. Uh, because imagine uh, 
if uh, you know they if you had done it in some American manufacturing plant. The American garment industry has been decimated, and everybody talks about what's happening to the American manufacturing economy. Everything's being outsourced to China. So imagine if you do use uh, an American garment plant, and NBC uh, brings a cameraman over to one of the workers, and she's watching in her living room during the open, opening ceremonies, and you know she's sitting there with pride, thinking she made those, and she actually mouths the words, I made those. And you know you get it on camera, and it's one of those insufferably sappy things that we're forced to watch during the Olympics. And it would have been, it would have been perfect, right? Like perfect stagecraft. Uh, you, you couldn't draw it up any better, and they totally blew that opportunity. Uh, and and of course the the main reason they did it is not because uh, they it was easier to make the athletes uniforms overseas because there's only a couple hundred athletes going to London. You can't make a couple hundred garments in, in a Chinese factory. They don't work in those quantities. You you need you need to make thousands and thousands. And so the reason they're making thousands and thousands, of course, is that they're going to be selling them here, and they are selling them. They're already for sale. And I'm not sure who exactly goes and pays hundreds of dollars for that Skippy and Muffy outfit, but somebody apparently does. And that's why they're doing it in China, because they're retailing it here. It wasn't about making it for the athletes. Ralph Lauren is more interested in selling it to the fans. You know, I, I like to see a big USA on, uh, on, the, on the Olympic uniforms, and some of them are so small. I saw Michael Phelps complain the other day they wouldn't let him put an American flag on his swim cap. Uh, is that true? I didn't. I hadn't I, heard I, that. I, yeah, he 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 popped off on that. The uh, now he is a swimmer. You know, you can't put. Uh, you can't expect him to have too much. Uh, you know, real estate there for a uniform. He's probably going to be wearing something that's pretty skimpy. That's right. But by far the the oddest thing in the Olympic uniform every every uh, every time is the wrestlers who have to reach into their singlet and pull out the handkerchief, or as it's indelicately known, the blood rag, uh, <laughs> to show the referee that they're prepared. To mop it up in case they start bleeding. Any other uh, oddball things with the Olympics that come to your mind? Yeah, well, for years uh, since uh, the early '90s, we've seen the Australian women's basketball team wear those unitards, um, which is sort of a singlet of sorts. It's a, it was a one-piece uh, uniform that they've worn, very skin-tight, uh, and they will not be wearing that this year. The players had been lobbying against uh, that uniform for a while. They they really didn't like it, even though it had become the team's. Uh, signature look, uh, and they're going to be wearing a more traditional um, shorts and a tank top this time around. Uh, another thing that I know a lot of people look forward to in terms of the Olympic uniforms are the beach volleyball bikinis, uh, and we may see less of that this year as well because uh, the International uh, Volleyball Federation has ruled that beach volleyball players can now wear um, a sleeved T-shirt uh, instead of just a, a bikini top, and uh, apparently the weather forecast for London is that it may be kind of cool for the beach volleyball, so many of them may indeed wear the T-shirt. I, I shudder the thought. John Ekdahl, who who wrote one of your posts recently, uh, concluded with a, a bit of YouTube of a one of the, um, I think, Australian hurdlers uh, that I think has got more than a million and a half hits. And it, it was it was a beautiful glorification of the female body, but if, if these trends continue, we may not have as much fun when, when we're dealing with a torrential downpour in Hyde Park. <laughs> So, Paul, um, moving on to some other contentious issues that you are very much at the forefront on, would love to uh, to get your take on uh, the announcement this week of the the near death penalty for Penn State, the removal of uh, Joe Paterno's statue, and the other uh, artifacts that surrounded that in in uh, uh, State College, uh, and and your thoughts on whether Penn State should alter its uniform going forward. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. While everybody else is talking about the statue and and the penalties. 
Uh, a lot of my readers were talking about whether Penn State should change its football uniform as a gesture or, or as some sort of response uh, to what had happened, because that no-nonsense look, number one, was very closely associated with Joe Paterno, and number two was supposed to symbolize that Penn State did things the right way. You know, their uniforms were very simple and straightforward. They didn't have a lot of bling. Uh, and, and that was supposed to be in keeping with how Penn State approached things. And we know now Penn State approached things in a way that wasn't so great. Uh, and so there's been a lot of chatter, uh, and I've heard, um, I've gotten over 100 emails from readers, and, and I've seen a lot of comments on, on my website as well. Uh, and the opinion is split pretty evenly down the middle between those who think uh, the uniform should not be changed and those who think it should be changed. Uh, the best proposal I heard was from uh, a reader who suggested that they simply change the helmet and make it, instead of uh, white with a blue stripe, make it blue with a white stripe. And it would be a, an unmistakable but very simple way of saying things are different here and, and of acknowledging that something has happened. And I see it as sort of like a, one of those SOS distress uh, gestures where you, you fly the flag upside down or something like that. Uh, it, it sort of strikes me as in keeping with that. And I think that would be a really good solution uh, to just change the helmet that way. But I've got to say, the, the biggest u- news in the, in the universe, as we call it, uh, is uh, the news that the NBA is planning to sell advertising patches on its, uh, on its jersey starting with the 2013-14 season. And that is the real debate in uniform circles right now. What do you think? Uh, I'm strongly opposed to it. Uh, I've always thought, uh, and in fact, one of the founding notions of UniWatch, uh, really, and the reason UniWatch has been a successful project, is that fans feel a very strong affinity to the uniform. Uh, you know, uh, rooting for a team is an incredibly intense form of brand loyalty. Uh, if you like uh, a certain brand of cereal, say, uh, you may like the package, but you really like the product. And if they change the product, if it doesn't taste good anymore, you're not going to keep buying it. But with sports, the, the content of the product, which is the players, and the quality of that content is changing all the time because the, the players come and go, they get injured, they get traded, the team can be good one year and bad the next. But you keep rooting for that team. You keep rooting for whoever wears that uniform. And that is a really intense bond, a special bond. And personally, I don't think it sh- uh, should be cheapened by the presence of a MasterCard advertising patch or uh, you know, a FedEx patch or whatever it might be. Uh, and, of course, we do see uh, jersey advertising elsewhere in the world you know, with European soccer and um, Japanese baseball and things WNBA. like that. Um, I see it as one of those things where this is truly a case of American exceptionalism, where we don't do that and we should continue not to do that. Paul, beyond the incredible expertise and unique view that you have of the sporting world, and nothing is like it. Uh, You are, at at core, and as we talked about earlier, a writer and a storyteller. And I I know how hard you work and the fact that I couldn't draw you uh, up to Columbus Circle to sit with us in in studio because you are so busy managing all your your different platforms. And, and, And I see, you know, when you when you do a post as you did uh, last week, thus spake Henderson, and you write it sort of in an oldie English form, uh, this really does also give you an outlet to, to have some fun as a writer, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, UniWatch has been, uh, can, continues to be a really fun project where uh, I have a lot of freedom to express myself uh, in some unusual ways because really there, there is nobody else covering this beat. Uh, I am the only full-time, you know, for better or worse, the only full-time uniform journalist uh, in America, or maybe the world, I'm not sure. Uh, and 
So there are no rules, there are no established protocols. I get to sort of make them up as I go, uh, and and I'm very fortunate to to have that that freedom. Well, Paul Lucas, you've got uh, since you've started talking to us, you've got 300 or, or 400 emails uh, that have come in that you need to respond to, and you've got about 3,500 hours of Olympic programming still to watch. So <laughs> we want to let you get back to that, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. I, I had fun with it. Thank you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.